0: Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and thank you this morning for the new covenant that you have inaugurated through the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would impress upon us what we have in this new covenant. We pray that you would cause us to feel the unspeakable profundity that you are our God and that we are your people. And Lord, we pray that you would increasingly cause us to feel what it is to have the law written on our hearts to be those who do not need to be taught because you have made this covenant in which we all know you. Lord, we ask that you would do this, that you might get glory from us, from our lives, that we might live as the scriptures teach, that we might know you, that we might walk with you, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to experience the the surety of knowing that there is nothing that will separate us from your love for us in Christ. And we pray that this would free us to fail, free us to attempt, free us to succeed with no boasting. And Lord, we pray that you would... Help us all to understand how it is that we have the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace in this fellowship. We pray that you would help us to understand more deeply what it is to be partakers of the new covenant. Help us to be committed to preserving and maintaining it. And also, Lord, those who winsomely invite others into it. We ask that you do all these things and much else beyond what I can imagine or think, and we pray that you do it all in Christ's name, amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Hebrews chapter 8, and we will be looking at the second part of the chapter starting in verse 7, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, and as you turn there, I want to try to illustrate what I think we have as those who partake in the new covenant, those of whom Hebrews chapter eight, the end of verse 10 can say that it's true of us, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so you you may have read or seen the movie, what happens at the end of book two of the Harry Potter series, at the end of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And and you know that Harry is in this dark uh, chamber that is inhabited by this this massive serpent there. And he is being taunted by Tom Riddle, whom it is revealed is in fact Lord Voldemort, the great evil power. And Voldemort has lured Harry down into this chamber of secrets so that this massive serpent can kill him. And and as they're they're facing off, Harry remembers these words that Albus Dumbledore had said to him earlier in the story. He said, help will always be given to those at Hogwarts who ask. And he also said in that same conversation, I will never truly have left this school as long as there are any here who are loyal to me. And in this moment when this massive serpent is about to kill Harry, he cries out, help me, help me. And he's already professed his loyalty to Dumbledore and then this phoenix, which is a, a, a symbol of Christ, this, this bird that regenerates itself upon its death, this phoenix flies in, and what he brings to Harry is this l- lumpy, n- ragged old hat, the school's sorting hat. And he drops it, and Harry sees it there, and Voldemort taunts him all the more. He says, oh, this is what Voldemort, uh, Dumbledore sends to his defender, the sorting hat, as though that's going to help anyone. That scene, if you know how it ends, we'll return to this at the end of the sermon. If you know how it ends, that scene is a little bit like having this passage about the new covenant. Because the world would look at this and say, oh, a lot of good that's going to do you. A lot of good this is going to do you. They would, they would mock us and taunt us. And I would invite you to look with me Again, at those words at the end of verse 10. And and the way that we're going to make our way through this passage is we're going to start here at what I think is the central statement, the last two phrases of Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, and we're going to work our way out from there. So I think that Hebrews 8, 10, C, this, this last phrase, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I think that's the central statement. We might say the pinnacle of this passage. And... I would just invite you to reflect on what the new covenant achieves. The new covenant achieves the Lord being able able to say to his people, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And I want you to contrast that with what happens in Hosea chapter 1 verse 9. Maybe you remember uh, what happens in the book of Hosea. Hosea is told to go and marry a wife of harlotry. He's he's to marry, I think, a woman who was a shrine prostitute, a woman who was engaged in a a fertility cult, and the the Lord commissioning his prophet to go and take a wife who had been engaged in such things was was symbolic, metaphorical, or we might even say allegorical, author-intended allegory, uh, of, of the Lord himself taking a sinful people as his covenant partner. So... Hosea represents the Lord. Gomer represents the people of Israel. And in the way that that Gomer had been engaged in such idolatrous and adulterous behaviors, it it, it depicts the way that the people of Israel had been idolaters, who were engaged in spiritual immorality and adultery. And and so Hosea marries Gomer, and and it's kind of a, a depiction of the Lord making the Old Covenant with the people of Israel. But then Children start coming along. And eventually, one of these children to be be named of Hosea and Gomer is given the name not my people. And it's an indication that there's another father to this child, not named Hosea. And, And then, in response to the birth of this child, who is not my people, the Lord says to through Hosea to the people of Israel, for you are not my people. And I am not your God. That was the outcome of the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, God entered into this relationship with Israel. But there were these statements made. If you do not keep the terms of this covenant, you will be driven into exile. You will be cast off. You will be told, essentially, the curses of the covenant say, by the Lord, you are not my people, and I am not your God. And that's exactly what happened. And other prophets like Jeremiah will speak of that rupture between the Lord and Israel as a divorce. A divorce between God and his people. Because the covenant was decisively, definitively broken and over between them. And what Jeremiah is prophesying in Jeremiah 31 is that when the new covenant comes, when the new covenant is inaugurated... There will be no such rupture. There will never come a time when the Lord says to someone who partakes in the new covenant, you are not my people, you are not my person, and I am not your God. That will not happen to someone who participates in the new covenant. These words, I will be their people, and they shall be my God. This is God saying, I am going to accomplish the purpose. I am going to achieve the goal. So the new covenant achieves what the old covenant could not. If you look back at chapter 7, verse 11, you'll remember that we saw there, the author says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest? And he's talking about Jesus arising as the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then if you look over at chapter 10, verse 14, we see the words, by a single offering, he, the Lord Jesus, has perfected. So you can see that perfection was not attainable under the Old Covenant, Hebrews 7.11. But the Lord Jesus has accomplished the perfection of his people through that single offering, Hebrews 10.14. We can also see in Hebrews 7, verse 18, the author of Hebrews says, On the one hand, a former commandment, and he's talking about the, the commandment that installed the, Levi, the Levitical priesthood, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, because it can't achieve perfection. But then look at the, look in the next statement in verse 19 of chapter 7, For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand a better hope is introduced. So you go from weakness and useless to a better hope in the new covenant, through which we draw near to God, because Jesus is able to perfect his people. And then we could, we could go on and on this way to describe the way that the author compares and contrasts the old covenant with the new to say the old covenant could not achieve what the new covenant has brought about. And the, the pinnacle of all of that is the Lord saying, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And as I alluded in my prayer, this is what enables Paul to, to say those things in Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And then he goes through all those things that will have no power to separate God's people from the love of God in Christ. (laughs) Concluding that he is convinced that there is nothing in heaven or on earth that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. The Lord says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. If that's going to be the case, changes have to be made. If that's going to be the case, if if we're going to be his people, and he is going to be our God, the, the other things surrounding that central statement have to be true. But before we move on to those, let me just offer you... a a way to respond to uh, this reality of the Lord saying, I will be their God and they will be my people. And and I want to to recall to your mind what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.3 and then Hebrews 4.11. He says in Hebrews 4.3, For we who have believed enter that rest. And then he says in 4.11, Let us therefore strive. To enter that rest. So there's kind of a two-part response to this I'm I'm offering to you. On the one hand, enter the rest. Enter the rest. Trust the Lord. Know that he has said to you, I will be your God, you will be my people, and just rest in that. And this is not contradictory. On the other hand, strive to enter that, that rest. Strive to enter that rest by cultivating a heart of faith cultivating a disposition of trusting the Lord, meditating on Scripture, calling on the Lord in prayer, walking with Him. I'd invite you to look with me next at the two surrounding statements of that central statement. And this is the second statement in verse 10, where it says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And then the first statement of verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. And I want to suggest to you that there's a profound connection between those two statements. Because if the Lord has written the Torah on your heart, you don't need a teacher. You don't need anyone to say to you, know the Lord, if you have experienced what it is that God does when he puts his law within you. And I would invite you also to notice the sort of comparison and contrast that the prophet Jeremiah is doing... ...that the author of Hebrews is quoting between the location and, and the inscription of the law under the Old Covenant... ...as compared with its location and inscription in the New Covenant. You remember that those two tablets were inscribed on tablets of stone with the finger of God. The Lord wrote the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone in the book of Exodus. And then those stone tablets were placed in the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And, and there's a sense in which that makes those things external to the people. And when those things are external to the people, and Moses had also told the people of Israel, places like Deuteronomy 29, I, I always, they've, they, they mess with the numbering of the Bible. So I don't know if it's verse three or four in, in English because it's verse three or, it's, it's one in Hebrew and another in English, and I, I never can remember which. So it's either Deuteronomy 29, three or four. The Lord says to Israel, through Moses, he says, down to this very day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. So the law is outside them, and they don't have the heart that they need to know, to see, to hear, to respond. So that covenant's never going to work. And, and all through the book of Deuteronomy, Moses repeatedly calls the people, to circumcise their own hearts. And I, and I think what's happening is Moses, is, it's as though he's saying to them, you don't have the heart you need, so you need to circumcise your own hearts. And it's like he's trying to push them to realize, I can't do that to myself. I, I'm helpless here. I need God to do this for me. And, and I think that under the old covenant, there were those who responded in just that way. And the Lord did that for them. It's kind of a, I would say they had circumcised hearts, which would be the old covenant analog to 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 being born again or being regenerated. But under the new covenant, the law is not going to be inscribed on stone tablets, which are located in the Holy of Holies in the Ark of the Covenant. No. Look at what that second statement of verse 10 says. I will put my laws into their minds. And this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, which says uh, I I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So, no more stone tablets and no more Ark of the Covenant and Holy of Holies. Now, the tablet is the human heart. And now, the location is within the person. And this is, again, this is connected to the fact that we are God's temple under the new covenant and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And as a result of this, I think, verse 11, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. So I think the kind of knowledge that is spoken of there is the kind of experiential knowledge that you have when you taste honey and you know that's sweet. And maybe you don't like honey. Maybe there's something else you like. You taste something you enjoy and you experientially respond that's wonderful. That's the kind of knowledge I think the author of, well, Jeremiah and now the author of Hebrews. is is talking about. When God writes his law on our hearts, we experience something, and I think that something is love for him. When God writes his law on our hearts, we love him, and that, I mean, think of the two great commandments of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and so forth, and love your neighbor as yourself. We experience that with the law written on our hearts, and that results in us being those who don't need to be taught what that experience is. As a result of this, when you hear the Bible, this is is one of the great things about about, uh, serving a regenerate church, a believer's church. You know, there, there are churches that are not exclusively believer's church. Baptist churches are believer's churches, which means we only welcome believers into membership. We only baptize believers into membership. There are other traditions that welcome other people into membership who who have not made a personal profession of faith, and they do this in various ways and for various reasons. Uh, One of the great things about serving a believer's church is that believers love the Bible. Believers hear the scriptures and their hearts say, yes, that's what I want. You, You come to a believer with a hard truth of scripture, something that's going to cause them to have to sacrifice personally. And their response is not, how dare you? Their response is, of course, naturally, yes, that's what I want to do. So I I hope you, I I trust you all resonate with what I'm saying here. Because the law is written written on our hearts, we want to give money to the cause of the gospel. We want to be those who... Do not seek to be served, but to serve. We want to honor rightful authorities in our lives. We want to submit to those rightful authorities rather than rebel against them. We want to learn in humility rather than boasting in pride. We want to love others rather than nurse our grudges and hate others. We want to be thankful, not grumbling. We want to trust Christ and know the Bible and all of this is springing out of love for God. That's what it is to have the law written on your heart. I think this is easy uh, to apply. It, 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 it calls us to recognize or to maybe to ask ourselves, is this how I respond? Is this how I respond? 1 John two twenty, John writes, he says, you have an anointing. And he's speaking, I think, of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you don't, have any, you don't need anyone to teach you anything. Do you have that? Do, do you have this experiential response to the Lord, to the scriptures, so that when, when something that in your flesh you would otherwise look at and say, I do not want to do that. I would not want to do that. But because you know Jesus, your response is, let me get my hands dirty with that one. Let let me be the one who cleans up this mess. Let me be the one who lays down my pride. Let me be the one who takes the worst, most uncomfortable seat in the van. Let me be the one who sacrifices my desires and lets somebody else pick what we're going to watch. Let me be the one who serves everybody else. If that's not how you reply, if that's not how you respond, I would urge you to call on the name of the Lord. Romans 1013, Paul promises, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You should cry out to him, Lord, change me. Write the law on my heart. Put love for you inside me. Make it internal, not external. Make it something that is, is welling up from within me, not something that is standing outside me making demands. Because if it's welling up from within you, you're going to want to do it if it's standing outside you making demands. You're always going to resist it. The next statements, the first statement of verse 10 and the last half of verse 11, if you look at those with me. The first statement of verse 10, the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah, being quoted now by the author of Hebrews, (coughs) for this is the covenant that I will make with them, with the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord. And then I think that that statement matches that last statement of verse 11, if you look down there. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. What's the covenant? Everybody in the covenant knows the Lord. Everybody in the covenant knows the Lord. If you don't know the Lord, you're not in the covenant. And this is why, this is why we baptize only believers. We baptize only believers because to the best of our ability, we're trying to make it so that what's true of the new covenant is true of the people that we recognize to be partaking ...of the New Covenant. That's not to say that we're always right. Sometimes we can be deceived. Sometimes people can be deceived. They think they're believers. They come and profess faith. It turns out they haven't been born again. They don't really believe. This is why we practice church discipline. We, we remove people who start acting like unbelievers... ...because we don't believe anybody but believers belong in the, in the New Covenant. And so, this, I, I believe this is what Jesus taught to his followers... This is what Jesus gave to the church. Go make disciples baptizing them. If someone will not hear you, tell it to the church. If he won't hear the church, let him be to you as a tax collector or a Gentile. This is why we baptize only believers. This is why we practice church. This is why we preach the Bible. We preach the Bible because we believe that the Bible is the tool that God uses to change people's lives. The tool that God's going to use to change your life is not my ingenuity. It's not the other elders' creativity. It's not our savvy business sense or some other quality that we have. The tool that God is going to use to change your life is His Word. And this is why we endeavor to be explaining the Word. This is why, I think, all of this, everything I've just said, is why we enjoy the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace precisely because we are partaking of the new covenant in which everyone in the covenant knows the Lord. Everyone in the covenant wants to respond to the scriptures. Everyone in the covenant is glad to take up their cross and follow Christ because he's worthy So let me offer you a way to respond to this. And and it's, it's really simple. Relish the covenant. Relish it. Savor it. Enjoy this. This is glorious what we have here at Kenwood Baptist Church. It is amazing to be part of a body of believers who love the Lord and want to serve him. Relish the covenant. And know God. Know God. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Next, in verses 9 and 12, uh, before I read these verses, I want to offer you what I think is going on here. I think in verses 9 and 12, what the Lord is saying is something like what the Lord is saying through Jeremiah, through the author of Hebrews, whereas the old covenant ended in exile and death, the new covenant ends in forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration, to the new and better Garden of Eden. So in verse 9, the author quotes Jeremiah saying that this new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So in other words, the way the old covenant worked was if they broke that covenant, the Lord would turn his face away from them, hide his face from them, and and remove his protecting presence from them. You read about this in Ezekiel 8 through 11. Ezekiel the prophet watches the glory of God exit the temple and then leave the city. And and the message is now the Babylonians are free to, to break down the walls, burn down the temple, kill a vast majority of the people, and exile the rest, and leave only a small... Remnant in the land That's where the old covenant ends Death, exile Brokenness In comparison with that look, verse, look at verse 12 I will be merciful Toward their iniquities And I will remember their sins No more So I think what the Lord is saying is The new covenant is not going to be Like the old covenant in that It is not going to end in exile And death those outside the covenant, those, those who do not partake in the new covenant, will experience exile. They will go to hell. But those in the covenant will never be forsaken. The Lord will infallibly, kindly, mercifully grant them repentance and bring them back. If you partake in the new covenant, you can be assured that if you ever fall into sin and you ever begin to wander, the Lord will bring you back. And if you don't get brought back by God's mercy and grace, it's because you were never born again. So, whereas the old covenant ended in exile and death, the new covenant ends in forgiveness. Look at those words there in verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Israel got to a place where the Lord said, enough. And, and he withdrew, and the judgment fell. The curse of the covenant fell. That won't happen. That won't happen in the new covenant. Because those in the new covenant will always hear the call to repent. The call of the Lord Jesus, for instance, in the letters to the seven churches. Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first. And if you're in the new covenant, you're like, I'm on it. I'm on it. Because the law's written on your heart. And it wells up from within you. And you desire to respond. So let me, let me offer you a word of response to this. Be forgiven. Be forgiven. In the same way that I would urge you to enter the rest, I would urge you to lay claim to the truth of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't be somebody who is holding on to your guilt in spite of the fact that you're trusting in Christ and in spite of the fact that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. Be forgiven. Rest in it. It's part of relishing the covenant. If you're here this morning and you don't know this... You have not experienced this. Again, I would urge you to, to obey what Paul, or do what Paul describes in Romans ten thirteen and call on the name of the Lord, and be saved, and be brought into the new covenant, and be somebody of whom the Lord says, I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So be forgiven, and uh, this next point of application comes out of that statement there that we just looked at in chapter 7. when he he speaks of that better hope in 719, experience hope. Experience hope. The hope that because of what Christ has done, you will infallibly be brought to paradise, to to the new and better land of promise, the fulfillment of the Garden of Eden in the new heavens and new earth. That is a hope that should overwhelm all our fears, and all our sorrows. That's a hope that says we will be made new. Every, every time we experience an ache or a pain, now, I'm, I'm sort of taking this from uh, J.O. and I going out to play, play frisbee as almost 50-year-olds, years old, 50 year olds, and, and, and we're both out there sort of groaning as we stretch <laughs> our tired old bodies, and, and and he'll say something like, the resurrection body is going to be awesome. <laughs> every time we experience an ache or a pain or a sorrow, we should look to the hope that we have. Experience hope. Be forgiven. Experience hope. And know rest. Enter the rest. Walk with God. Walk with God in anticipation of the restoration of the cool of the day. There's that beautiful statement in in Genesis 3, when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the the garden in the cool of the day. One day we're going to hear that sound. And there will be no need to hide ourselves. We walk with him now in anticipation of that glorious day. Finally, in in verses 7 and 8, and then the last verse, verse 13, we see that Jeremiah's announcement of a new covenant set the timer for the old to become obsolete and vanish. You know how... Uh, you, you put something in the oven and you set a timer for it, and when it goes off, you take it out of the oven. What the author is saying here is, when Jeremiah made this, this prophetic announcement that the Lord was going to make a new covenant, it's like he put the old covenant in the, in the oven, and he turned on the timer. And once the timer expires, the old covenant is over. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter eight, verses seven and eight, verse seven. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And by faultless, I think he's saying something along the lines of what we just saw in 7-11. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would we we have for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? In other words, the first covenant didn't do the job. It couldn't do the job. And then verse 8, For he finds fault with them when he says now I just want to make a comment about that phrase with them and I want to suggest to you that that phrase applies both to the people and to the laws that comprise the old covenant there's a a problem with the people in that as Moses says in Deuteronomy 29 it's either verse 3 or 4 you can look it up later Um, (laughs) it's that one that would you know what I'm saying um the people don't have the heart that they need. They don't have the law written on their hearts, and they need it. Now, there are, there are these wonderful indications in the Old Covenant that some of God's people did seem to experience the, the law being written on their heart. I mean, go read Psalm 119. That guy has the law written on his heart. And, and a love for the law and, and a desire to, to walk in accordance with God's truth and teaching and instruction is just welling up from within him. But on the whole, on the whole, the people didn't have the heart that they need. So there's a problem with the people. And there's also a problem with the law. And here I would reference um, what Paul says in Galatians 3 when he says the words, if a law had been given that could give life. And and what he's saying is the law that was given to Israel was not a law that caused them to be born again. If a law that, that had been given that could give life. So... Whereas Jesus says in John 6, 63, these glorious words, he says, um, the flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit who gives life. Yeah. And then he says, my words are spirit and life. It's as though Jesus is saying, as I speak to you, the Holy Spirit gives life by, by means of the words that I speak. That's different from the law. So he finds fault with them, Hebrews 8, 8, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then he goes into the description. Look with me at verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, and notice how he uses that phrase, new covenant, back in verse 8. He makes the first one, and notice again, 8.7, for if that first covenant had been faultless. in speaking of a new covenant, 8.13, he makes the first one obsolete. So I think the author of Hebrews is saying, Jeremiah did this. When Jeremiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prophesied, days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a new covenant, by those words... Jeremiah is saying the timer has been set on the Old Covenant, the Sinai Covenant. The the clock is now ticking, and there's going to come a time when it expires. Look Look at the next words of 8.13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's gone. There's no more need of it. Now, you may be thinking, what about the Lord Jesus saying, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill? Well, I would suggest that by abolishing, or sorry, by fulfilling, he abolished. Jesus fulfilled the law, and then when, when he had fulfilled all righteousness, when he had done everything that was required, he transformed the, the, the Passover feast into the Lord's Supper. And and essentially said, the time has come when you no longer identify your God and your Savior by the exodus from Egypt. You now identify your God and your Savior by what I am doing for you on the cross. And that also was prophesied multiple times in the book of Jeremiah. So, how might we respond to this? How might we respond to the fact that the old covenant is obsolete? Well... I want to suggest a couple of things that you should do. Number one, you should remember that Paul, on two occasions, Romans 15:4, 4, uh, 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 8, verse 9, says that everything that was written in former days was written for our instruction. So you should avail yourself of the Old Testament to be instructed as to who God is, as to what his, what his holy character is like. And you you really have to understand the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, to make sense of the New Testament. But second, second, you should recognize we are not under the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant priesthood is not our priesthood. The Old Covenant sacrificial system is not our sacrificial system. And I would suggest to you, the Old Covenant law is not our law. Look again at Hebrews 7.12. Where there is when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And whereas some Christian thinkers, many perhaps, want to parcel up the law into moral, civil, and ceremonial, I would suggest the author of Hebrews makes no such distinctions within the law. He he suggests that we are under, I think, the law of Christ. There are many things that could be discussed here. We can pursue those conversations. I want to conclude by returning to that scene that I that I started to sketch at the beginning of the sermon as Voldemort is mocking Harry this is what Dumbledore sends to his defender Harry Harry has realized he's come to know through the course of the book that the basilisk has these eyes that kill so that if you look the basil- if you see the basilisk's eyes it will kill you and so he takes the sorting hat and he puts it over his head and it covers up his eyes and now he's protected from that aspect of uh, the basilisk. Meanwhile, the, f- the bird, the phoenix, which also Voldemort had mocked, goes about the business of pecking out the eyes of the basilisk, removing that difficulty. Harry is still in grave danger, so he's still crying out, help, and he reaches up and he feels the sorting hat and he squeezes it. No, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. I think at that point he again cries, help me, and he feels something hit his head. And and what has happened is that the sword of Gryffindor, this priceless treasure, this, this magical sword that is capable of piercing the serpent and killing it, has been brought to him through the sorting hat. And so he pulls out the sword of Gryffindor and he crushes the serpent's head. As the basilisk comes crashing toward him to kill him, Harry braces himself with the sword and... the the great snake impales himself upon that sword. So what was mocked by the evil, by the wicked, this is what Dumbledore sends his defender, was the, the seemingly weak, veiled weapon that actually accomplishes the triumph. And you can imagine someone saying, this is what God does to save the world? He's born as a baby. He gets himself crucified. This is how God is going to save the world? And then you can imagine them saying of us, this is what God does to save you? He gives you this book with this message in it? And Paul says in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. As we we oppose false teaching, as we stand for the gospel, perhaps you've heard people in recent days say, This is what Baptists have to offer? This is all you've got? And and, and I think we should respond, right. The weapons of our warfare are mighty to tear down strongholds, but they are not the weapons of the world. They don't look like the weapons of the world, and they won't be used like the weapons of the world. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would rest heavily upon us. Lord, we want to be people for whom these these words that you spoke through the prophet Jeremiah, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Lord, we want these words to be everything to us. And so Lord, we pray that it would indeed be the case that you have written your law on our hearts and that we need no one to teach us. And Lord, we pray that, that not only would a desire to obey spring up from within us, giving us boldness with one another, to speak the word to one another, to call one another to obedience, to repentance, to sacrifice. Lord, also we pray that this confidence would it would assure us that our sins are forgiven that you will remember them no more because we partake in the new covenant and everyone in the new covenant knows you and this is not a covenant like that Sinai arrangement that resulted in exile and death but one in which you are merciful to our iniquities and remember our sins no more lord we pray that the great glory of Christ would be seen as we live out of the truth of the new covenant. We pray that his incomparable worth, the priceless treasure of who he is and the ultimate conquest in what he has done. We pray that these things would be displayed in our responses to the difficulties of life. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the spirit. We thank you for the opportunity to sing your praise now. In Christ's name.